1999, SDCF held a panel about managing your career, featuring panelists Steve Bullerjack, Lee Giroux, Noah Kimmerling, Brett Singer, and Ross Wisdom to discuss their various areas of expertise, accounting and taxes, legal issues, and publicity for artists, and how to apply their knowledge to better run the business of your professional life to allow you to grow and develop your artistic career. Hello, I'm director choreographer Christopher Gatelli, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. This afternoon we're going to talk about um, managing your career as if you, as an artist, were your own small business, as it were. We're going to look at um, legal aspects, uh, accounting aspects, public relations, and management aspects of um, really sort of selling yourself as uh, a lack of a better word, a commodity. I mean, you realize you're artists, but the realities of the work situation are um, that oftentimes you are, in effect, your own one-person business, and you need to understand uh, a lot about what the legal and tax ramifications are, what it means to manage yourself um, so that you can grow and develop your career as you grow and develop yourself artistically. Um, so I think that we'll get a lot of good information this afternoon from our panelists. Very pleased. Um, I'll just briefly let you know who's sitting where. That on the far end is Brett Singer and Noah Kimmerling and Ross Wisdom. Here we have Steve Bolojak and Lee Giroux. So thank you all for coming and welcome. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna let each of them talk to you a little bit about. Um, what their area of expertise is and how it relates to a director or an artist's career. Um, and then we'll continue uh, to have a discussion. We're going to keep this pretty informal, so let people ask questions whenever they come to you. Um, we really want you to get the kind of information that will be as useful to you as possible. So use the, use the wealth we have here and get as much information as you can out of them. Um, I'd like to start with uh, Steve, our public relations consultant. You talk a little bit about what you do and how it relates to these artists. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, again, my name is Steve Bowler-Jack, and, and I have my own um, very small uh, freelance writing, editing, and public relations consulting business. Um, I'm also the author, I hope, to be the author of a book entitled Public Relations for Your Small Business, which I hope to have out by the end of this year. So look for that. Um, I come out of a, <coughs> of a corporate public relations background, uh, eight years with a large agency called Hill & Knowlton, which is really one of the top two or three agencies in the world. Uh, Hill & Knowlton does have an entertainment division, and I did do some work for, for that part of the company as well. So I have... Uh, dipped my hand into the entertainment side of, of PR uh, as well. I've also done some publishing, uh, public relations, and uh, also worked with individuals such as yourselves on, on very uh, kind of limited but uh, self-driven 
types of promotional and marketing activities. Um, I don't know what you, I, that's, having said what I am, I will tell you what I'm not. I am not by any means an expert in this type of PR, in, in dance choreography or entertainment or, uh, or anything like that. I've done bits and pieces of it. But I think the reason that I am here is that I, I firmly believe that um, public relations is basically the same, the same thing throughout, regardless of what industry or what subject matter we're talking about here. Uh, I don't know what your perceptions might be of PR, um, I find that there's a lot of convoluted notions about it and a lot of uh, confusion with uh, advertising and marketing and publicity. But basically, I try to keep a very, very simple definition of public relation, and that is basically uh, any effort to convey the right message to the right audience. And I think that that's something that can be done either on a very individualized basis, which I think you're all working at, or on a big company corporate basis as well. So with that in mind... Um, I'm just going to plunge in here. And what I'm going to do is just sort of throw off some ideas here, and you can tell me whether I'm anywhere near on target or way off base. Um, in talking to some of the folks who are organizing this, I know that most of you probably do a number of things before a show or before performance, and, and I think that probably one of the most common is simply to send out the postcards that uh, we all get to just to announce the performance and say who's in it. Um, and that's all well and good. I'm not saying that that isn't something you should do, but... Um, what I'll do is try to throw in a few other ideas. Now, again, none of these are particularly earth-shattering, so don't get too excited about it. But, but to help you maybe think a little bit further beyond that, again, using very basic and somewhat corporate-type public relations techniques to maybe take just an additional step beyond postcards. Okay? Um, first of all, any kind of PR that you do on your own as an individual or for the show, as a, whether you're a director or choreographer or performer or whatever it is you're doing, you know, it doesn't have to be a big deal, and it doesn't have to be expensive. There are some things that you can do very, very cost-effectively. Um, the, 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 the cost is actually going to involve your time, um, some research, making lists, and some follow-up. Now, having said that, um, I'm going to run through just a few things that maybe you haven't thought about that I would suggest you, you think about doing. Um, one of the first things you can do is to think about who your actual audiences are. And by audiences, I'm not talking about the people who are sitting in the theater watching the performance. I'm talking about the people who are hearing about the show or, your, or the performance who might be writing about it. Obviously, these are going to be reviewers, but there may be other types of reporters and editors and writers as well. So um, I, I would suggest that you, you think about the media aspect of this, which is the best way, obviously, to get out your, your message and information about the performance. Um, beyond just the reviewers and the entertainment people. Uh, there may be feature writers, lifestyle writers, uh, more personal um, types of um, personal lifestyle writers that are interested in covering other aspects of a performer's or a choreographer's life other than just the, the performance in and of itself. So you may have a bigger media audience than you really actually have realized. Uh, and that media in itself, of itself exactly doesn't have to be... Uh, you know, the dance, the dance media, or what we call the trade media or industry media. It may be uh, the community. There are so many, for instance, there are so many community newspapers in New York City. You know, everybody's got some sort of little neighborhood newspaper that um, are always looking for stories. And again, I, I, I qualify this by saying I know that doing this on an individual basis, this, you might think, well, this sounds pretty small time. Well, you know, we're doing this on an individual basis. We're not relying on big production companies or big theaters to actually go out and do the 
the big budget corporate PR that you would expect at that level. So the things that we're doing on our own have got to be, let's face it, fairly limited and to some extent fairly small. So think about not only your trade media, your entertainment media, but some of the other publications around town that might have an interest in covering you, either as a performer or on a lifestyle basis. The other key point I'd like to make about PR is that not only who your audiences are, but you need to think about what the actual messages might be. Of course, the obvious message is going to be, this is a great performance. I'm a terrific dancer. I'm a terrific performer, whatever it might be. But there may be some other things about the show, about yourself, about the company, about the people you're working with. Personal stories. How did you get where you are? A lot of these smaller papers love to cover, you know, hometown people make good. I mean, there's all sorts of nuances to how a performer gets to where they are today that you should never lose sight of. It's not just about the performance in the show. So, again, think a little bit more broadly about, you know, the context in which you're functioning. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine used to be the editor of a large entertainment magazine. He's now out on his own, and he's freelancing, and he got a story in the New York Times style section a few months ago on the actress Laura Linney. Laura's done a number of things. You may be familiar with her. I think she was in... Uh, Armistead Mopin's Tales of the City on PBS a few years ago. Um, they, did, they came up with this story that had absolutely nothing to do with any of her, her, her performances or appearances, but about this trip she was taking to Europe and about what that involved and all the clothes she had to take and what her schedule was like. Now, on the surface, that sounds well so. But they made it very, very interesting. It was kind of a snapshot in the day of the life of an actress. You know, that sort of thing takes it beyond just the performance, and that can actually, the type of thing that can turn into a feature story, and this particular one ended up in the New York Times. So that's, that's a big deal example. I don't know if we could do that, but just keep that in mind as kind of what to shoot for. The overall key to all this, I believe, is, uh, is to combine uh, you know, some kind of really obvious professionalism with what you're doing. You're spending a lot of time rehearsing and honing your performances. Any information, whether it be a postcard, whether it be you know, press kits or whatever that you're sending out about yourself ought to reflect that kind of perfectionism as well. You're not doing yourself any good if you just send out something that looks a little bit amateurish, that's not well written, that looks a little, you know, tacky. So keep in mind that it's not just about your performance. It's about the material that talks about you as well. There's some basic tools you can use, and again, <laughs> not, not rocket science, not earth-shattering, but... Uh, you may not have ever put together a press kit on yourself. You know, there's no reason why an individual performer can't do that. Announcing your performance, talking about your history, again, it has to be well-written, it has to be professionally presented, but it does have a little bit more impact than just a mere postcard is going to do. Uh, photos, obviously, again, not just performance-related, but anything that shows the history of you as an individual, um, how you progressed in your career. Um, how you evolved, evolution stories. <clears throat> Again, back to what I said before about how you got where you are today. Um, another key element of, of, uh, of a press kit, and again, these are going out to, again, not just the reviewers, but anybody you might identify as a, as a lifestyle reporter who might have some interest in what you're doing, are backgrounders. And these can just be a couple of pages. And the whole objective to backgrounders are, um, again, on corporate levels, entertainment levels, whatever they might be, is basically to provide good language to a reporter about you, about the show, about the history, whatever the context may be, 
The whole point is to make their job easier. Give them language that they can basically lift, put in a story about you. They're going to love you all the more if you, if you do anything that lightens their load. Um, the key is really to make their job as easy as possible. Again, with some professionalism and good, uh, good writing and good language. And the final point I'd like to make for you to just think about is, um, Bob, somebody was telling me that one of the things that you might be suffering from is a bit of a, a, a hesitation or a bit of a fear of, of contacting these folks. Um, once you do a list of, of people, not only entertainment and reviewers and reporters who might have some interest in you, you should never, ever be hesitant about calling a reporter, especially at this smaller level. Small, small publications are always looking for story angles, new ideas, and new people. And they're very likely to take your call at that level. You should never be intimidated by them, certainly. They may not cover you initially, but very, you're very likely to get in the Rolodex. They're highly likely to call you for something the next go-around. And it gets you in the pipeline. It gets, it gets you in their system. So I'd really like you to, uh, if you come away from nothing else, get over whatever hesitation you might have about dealing with reporters. They need you more than you might realize. So a few things to think about. Any questions? Yes. Um, <coughs> thank you for your comments. Um, it, just, uh, most of, it seemed to be addressed to performers, and many of us are directors mm -hmm. who are performers of another kind, but we're not seen, although our work is seen. So I just was wondering whether you could address that. Well, I would think that... Um, I didn't mean to focus it so exclusively on performers. I would think that, you know, as a director, or whether you're a producer or a creative consultant or a writer, whatever role you have in a performance in a show, again, you've got the same kind of history of a career that brought you to where you are today. And just because you're not out there in, on stage in front of the audience doesn't mean, I wouldn't think, wouldn't mean that there wouldn't be some interest in some sort of coverage about what you are and how you got there. So I would definitely think that most of these tactics, particularly the press releases about your career, about perhaps serving as a spokesperson for the show and providing that background language, might be the perfect role for somebody in the director position. So I would I would say, don't let that stop you from doing this uh, this PR fit at all. Yeah, back. Um, you can pay a press agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, that's, that's one of the biggest challenges. If you do have to do this on your own, if you are as an individual, um, that's, that's one of the toughest things to get going. It's basically to get your media list going. You can buy them or you can create them yourselves. There's the, the, the best directory in the city is called Bacon's Media List, and they're categorized by all sorts of uh, industries. There's financial, business, and there's certainly entertainment, lifestyle, publications, and reporters as well. They're found, the uh, best place to find them is the New York Public Library. And it might be a good idea to go spend an afternoon and photocopying some media lists. Now, the problem with that is you can start that. Media lists tend to have to be continually updated. Speech change, reporters change, fax numbers change all the time. And it's, it's the, 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 the advice I give to my clients is you're wasting your time and your money and your effort if you send out any kind of paper and material to an old media list. One of the, before you do anything, you need to make the calls and update it and make sure it's all going to current numbers. Again, this is not, like I said, folks, this is going to be a little time-consuming. But if budget is a problem, and like you said, you, can't, you don't want to pay a press agent to do this stuff for you, 
This is stuff you can do over the course of a few days on your own for no other cost than your time and your copying charges. Yeah. My question is three tiers about following through with context that you've mm -hmm. already made. Mm -hmm. There are three different kinds of context programming with people that you've actually interviewed with, mm -hmm. people that you corresponded with and they've been back and said, mm -hmm. if you're doing something, please let us know. Mm -hmm. And um, then the third is the cold context that you've made. Maybe right. There was an ad backstage looking for a choreographer. You sent them your information. Well, first of all, you bring up an excellent point, and that is follow-up. Um, that is really a key. If I were going to keep talking about this for, for more time than I've got, I would talk a little bit more about follow-up, so thank you for bring, bringing that up. It really isn't enough just to send out you know, your material to this selected list of reporters and editors and reviewers, whatever it is, and expect them to you know, all beat a path to your door. Follow-up is, is crucial. You really need to say, hi, this is, you know, this is Mary Smith. I'd sent you my uh, a packet of material. I just want to make sure you got it. Is there anything else I can do? That sort of thing. So, but I think to answer... Theaters that would hire... Pardon me? Uh, okay, well, I, yeah. well, again, how that specific function works, I'm not exactly sure, but, I, but what, to try to answer your question as best I can about kind of how to, how to do this follow-up, I say you don't have anything to lose by, even if you think it's overkill, by going ahead and resending something, you know, calling again. I, I think what you're saying is how, how extensive should your follow-up be? Well, I, I wondered to remind them about a letter that they've written. Should you just refer to it or should you actually photocopy the letter? I'm always. I, I'm a I'm a big believer in uh, providing as much material as possible. But let me tell you something. A reporter gets, you know, it doesn't matter what level they're at. They get tons of faxes and mail and now email every day, and it's very hard for them to keep keep track of that much stuff. And if you have any doubt whatsoever that they've lost it, which happens all the time, I mean, I when I worked as a as a an account executive at Hill and Milton, I mean, half the time I'd do my follow up calls to media. Oh, yeah, I think I saw that, but gosh, what happened? Could you send us that again? You know, it almost always involves resending your material. So that's just part of the, unfortunately, that's so just part of the plan. So don't hesitate. Sure, why not? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Make their job easier. Okay. Don't make them look for something. Put it in front of them. To move on a little bit now, sure. we'll get more, back to more questions later. Um, uh, Brett, you're both uh, you do publicity, but you're also a personal manager right. of, of directors. And can you talk about what that role entails? Um, well, actually, it's nicely timed because I can jump sort of jump in and not repeat everything that he said, which is all oh, absolutely applies to theater and to doing your own press or doing anything like that. And then, Pat, but how does that translate into actually furthering your career? Because you can see. Even the New York Times might write a wonderful, glowing, fabulous article about somebody, and that person might still not work for two years um, because it doesn't having it written about you doesn't necessarily translate into anything. If someone, even a great review in the New York Times, the show still might close. I mean, you know, it's it's a very frustrating thing, but it happens um, because ultimately, I would take everything uh, that we just said and then one take it one step further, which is everything ultimately just sort of comes back to you. Is that just going along what you said about following up? 
continue, keep following up. It's like your show's over. Okay, what did you get from that? Keep going. You know, you have this big package of articles now, hopefully. Or even one thing. You've got one great article that they wrote in your alumni magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it was a good, you know, it's got a big color picture of you. You know, you're sitting in the rehearsal room, and that's terrific. So you send that out to all the people that you've been talking to and you've been courting and you've been trying to get to come to your shows and then keep, the, you know, keep them posted about what you're doing without, I mean, you want to keep in touch with them, but you also want to know who you're talking to. And you don't want to, you don't want to irritate someone to the point where they just never want to talk to you again. Um, but just to tell you a little bit about what I do is I do publicity, theatrical publicity, mostly for off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway shows, which tends to be with, you know, the four-week run kind of thing, um, which is its sort of own challenge and usually is more, more and more, actually, it's, it's about the artists which is why I ended up managing certain people. There was, I really started doing it. There was one show I was working on that was a musical that had a rock star in it, and there were all these people calling, and they wanted to come see it. And I finally said to the producer, I said, listen, I'm happy to talk to these people, but at some point they're going to say, what's your involvement? I want to be able to say, well, I have 20% of it, so let's talk. Um, and, from, and he said, absolutely, go talk to them. So from there, I then... You know, when someone would call me and say, I want you to do publicity for me, but they didn't have a show, we would maybe move a little bit into management, and now it's more something that I do. Um, I think that I would actually use the publicity model, without being too theoretical, to think about your whole career, is to sort of look at it, even if you don't have a show coming up, is think about what you would put into a press kit. You know, what would you want someone to know about you? If you were writing a press release about what you're doing, what would it say? And what would you put down? And sometimes that can really help you to sort of focus and see what you have that's really valuable. And, and also things that maybe you did that, you know, you know, you started talking a little bit too much about that thing you did a few years ago. And maybe people remember it a little too well and you don't want them, you know, talking about it. Um, which is fine because ultimately, even as personal as, as I find this business is, it really is very much a business. And that was... I, re I can actually remember when I started thinking about things that way, and my whole perspective on theater and the entertainment industry just changed. It's like, well, this is a job, too, is that it may be a little more fun than some other jobs. It may have the potential to be much more glamorous, and at the same time, it also may just suck a lot more than other things. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, it's still a job. Is that you still, you, come, you know, maybe you don't keep the same hours, but it is a job. And once you sort of think about it like a career like any other, I mean, if you were trying to get a job as a computer programmer, there are things you would do. You would look at your resume. You know, you wouldn't put down outdated computer languages that nobody cares about anymore. You know, you would emphasize one thing. You might have a different resume that you sent to a different person. And you can think about, you know, the same thing. It's, it, I try to keep it as, again, without being overly theoretical, it's just I try to make it less emotional, if at all possible, which obviously, because it's always going to be, no matter what, because it's art is very personal, um, and therefore it's going to be very serious. But at the same time, you, know, you sort of take a step back and say, well, how does this person looking at me and what I'm doing and what I'm telling them? That, you know, it goes along with uh, publicity in that you're presenting yourself to another theater. I mean, the, way, the other way that I started getting into this is I actually got a director a job, which was a great thing, and very quickly, and she was really impressed. It started out, I was doing publicity for her show. Really, the whole reason for the show's existing was that she was directing it. She helped 
great career in England, had absolutely no career here, just paid for this show, wanted to get it up. It was a production of Waiting for Godot. It wasn't that far away from the CSC thing. You know, ultimately, nobody was going to care as much about the show as they were going to care about her. So that's what we promoted, and then we sort of translated that into, we just did a mailing to like 18 New York nonprofits, and we got a call right away because of how we put it. It was, it was a job search letter. It was not, here's how wonderful this person is. It's here's how wonderful this person is, and she's available. You know, and you could hire her to do this, and she could come in right now. And someone jumped on that, and it gave her a chance to come back from England, get to New York, do a show, get reviewed by the New York Times, and all of the sort of good things. But it started with sort of presenting it to the right person at the right time, you know, and, make, and being available, um, which, which is pretty much what I see my job as, as sort of being someone else other than you that, uh, I mean, at the very basic level, someone other than you that these people um, I can't tell you how many times people said, well, can I tell you what I thought of that show? And I'm like, sure. And they proceeded to tell that show made me very angry. I thought it was horrible. I walked out. You know, like, oh, that's terrible. They would never say that to the artist, and I wouldn't necessarily say that to them either. But at least you find out, and you're not just calling and calling and calling because that person just doesn't want to call you and say, no, oh, I really think that, you know, I really didn't like it, and I'm sorry. Um, because that's just not going to happen. I'm that other person. You know, they can talk to, and then maybe there's something that they did like, and then I can discuss it with them, and we can maybe get them to the next thing, and you know, we'll work on that. Uh, and then to even go a little bit further is sort of looking at. I would look at what else is out there. I mean, I've been doing a lot of this, like putting other clients in touch with each other. Is a writer and the director in some way here. We I got the two of them together. He loves her play. She's thrilled that a director is taking her seriously. And she's really a very talented writer, but it's, it's very hard. She's sending her scripts out, and people are saying, this is great, but we can't produce it right now. And what does she do? It's like, well, you need a director to be excited about you, and then get the two of them together. They, and it's just, it's all about people that you know. So I guess just I'll throw, throw it out and say, uh, does anyone have any questions? <laughs> Um, that's a good question. For, for shows, it's a little easier because there's a going rate. I tend to be a little less than that just because I don't have the same overhead as some people. And also, uh, to be perfectly honest, I tend to feel guilty because I know how much money everyone's losing on these things. Um, but for management, if someone comes to me and they say, well, I've got all these things that could be happening, I'll talk to them and we'll see how soon that's going to actually be going on. And also, realistically, I mean, with this playwright, I mean, we finally got this thing going in like North Carolina, I think, and it's not that much money. And I mean, any percentage that I would take, I mean, I'm not going to take a percentage of her temp job. I mean, that would be, <laughs> it's not really fair to either of us. So, I mean, we'll figure something out. I mean, I also will do, um, and this is just because people have called and asked, is I'll do a consultation and say, okay, here's what you, I mean, this is rare, but it does happen. And someone will say, listen, I don't necessarily need like a full-time publicist. <clears throat> which is expensive. I mean, a lot of people who maybe can afford it wouldn't necessarily need that. But I really need to just sit down with someone for an hour or two and just really figure out, I've got all these things going on and I have no idea what to do. And what I realize is that's like career counseling. Is in every other field, there are career counselors who charge what I think is a phenomenal <coughs> amount of money. Um, and you sit down and you talk and go, okay, here's what, here's what you're doing, here's what I think you're doing wrong. Um, and I would actually liken it to, you know, people take singing lessons, they take dance lessons, and you know, this is just one other thing that there's absolutely no reason why you should just know how to do it. And if anything, it's in some ways it's harder because it's not just, it's not 
I mean, well, I shouldn't say hard, but it's not just a physical skill. It's not hitting the right note. It's, it's, and it has much more to do with what the state of the business happens to be that week. I, just, I sat down with the director last night to talk. She finally has a chance. She's got somebody who's very important who says, I'm willing to help you. She's got a list of like eight plays. And this is a busy guy. He's like a busy Broadway director. I said, if you give him a stack of eight plays and go help me pick, he's going to run, he's gonna run away screaming no matter how much he likes you. Just he, doesn't, he can't take the time to do it. So we figured out what we thought was best for which theater. So she can go to him and say, well, I think these two would be good for the Atlantic. I think these would be good for the Atlantic Theater Club. You know, who do you know and what can you help me do? Because he, he said, I'll help you do anything, but what he probably won't do is read all of those scripts. You know, <laughs> and then, like, talk about it. So make it, I mean, that, that's actually goes into sort of an actual piece of just make it as easy for them as you possibly can. I mean, the same thing, like you said, send them more. Something like I, when I'm doing publicity, I mean, I fax people the same stupid press release constantly. And I've yet to have someone say, you faxed this from too many times. You know, I've gotten too many damn press releases from you, you know, leaving me alone. Because um, they just, they lose half of the stuff that they get anyway. You know, just got, they, there's so many shows going on. Uh, and it's, it's a little different when you're dealing with an artistic director or with a producer, but at the same time, you're dealing with busy people who are getting a lot of those kind of phone calls. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk to the person and we'll see what's, we'll see what's realistic. I, just, I mean, I have an hourly rate, but I have pretty rare that I end up actually billing somebody by the hour because it would usually be, you know, I guess I should have gone to law school, but <laughs> it, would, it, would be, it would be too expensive, so. So what for like a six, roughly six week showcase is usually, I actually just heard that someone got a lot more than this, so I should say it, but like, like 2,500 plus expenses, um, which again, I mean, it varies a little bit, but <coughs> that's kind of a good general starting point. Do you think people like getting better email passes or mail? I like getting email, but yeah. that's I, I actually if I can get an email I'll always prefer that. But but it very varies from person to person. Some people yeah. are more apt to sit in front of their computers all day right. and therefore they like it. I find faxes you gotta I would always ask, Do you think you'll get it? I mean politely, you know, do you, <laughs> but if it's an office then it's fine, but if it's a newspaper or something, you om, it's almost pointless to fax the unless they're sitting by the fax machine, right. I would say nine times out of ten, they never get it. And this could be the most important person there. It doesn't matter. If what you send it randomly, they probably won't get it. What about a theater? I'd say it's okay to do it, but you should check and make sure it didn't get lost in the shuffle. So or first just, email, you know, sitting in the pile. then mail, and then mm, I would probably first mail. Okay. I mean, if it's, ma if it's a mass thing, if you have an email address and you're just contacting those <coughs> two people, then you may as well send an email and see what happens. You know, I, like I said, it's a very that's a pretty personal thing. I I'd always rather get an email. And you email people cold, or people you've already made contact with? Um, I don't know. I would say if I were doing a cold, like, I don't. I tend not to do like mass emails because I think people tend to. It's easier to delete an email than to draw a letter. You know, like a letter is an actual piece of paper sitting in front of you, and you have to open it and you look and you go, okay, I guess here. It, it takes a little bit more paying attention. Where it's delete an email, like I don't know who that is. You know, it's just gone. Oh, okay. So a completely cold thing, I, particularly if it were on a large scale, I'd probably send a letter. You know, maybe follow up with an email and just kind of then make a phone call. I mean, it's perfectly, no matter how huffy somebody gets with you on the phone, like you don't have to respond. I mean, you can say, no, I'm just, you know, I sent you this thing. Is, and it, it's a fair question to say, is this the right time for me to be sending it to you? I mean, there are theaters that don't really, 
they look certain times of year and they don't necessarily talk about it, but they know when they're looking. And you say, you know, listen, I sent it to you last week. Um, when do you hire directors, choreographers? You know, what's the good time to send it to you? They may say, gee, you know, I really don't even look at any resumes until the summer. Great. Send them in the summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one, the best, you know, sort of quick success story where we got a call, it turned out to be, was from the Pearl, and it was the day after we sent out this mailing, because he looks like, you know, roughly in sort of end of the summer is when he really starts heavily looking, and it was, I mean, it couldn't have been better timing, because that's when he was hiring, he called right away, he was so excited to have, like, a really experienced director who was available to come in and start, you know, in a couple of weeks. So, but, and it was entirely about timing, so, but that's, it's a fair thing to ask, even if somebody's like, I don't have time, it's like, well, no, you know, I don't want to waste your time. I just, you know, want to get it to you at the right time. Most people will at least, if you can get them to sort of talk about it, they'll probably tell you when the best time to do it is. So. Okay, so uh, move on to more of our panel here. It's getting to be near uh, tax day, and we have a couple other comments here. Uh, what is the best way for a, a director or a choreographer to uh, structure themselves for tax purposes? Um, well, let me, let me just say, uh, Briefly, who we are, who we're from, and where we're from. Uh, we, we come to this meeting. Uh, basically, we were asked by uh, Catherine Happel, who works for the organization, to come and make a presentation and um, try to help people who need our help. Um, one would say, why are accountants out of their office today? I can't answer that question. <laughs> Other than I've brought pens and, and business cards. Um, uh, this firm is about 30 years old. Um, we do. Uh, a myriad of services for uh, artists and um, and what I mean by artists I mean uh, film people, uh, actors, actresses, uh, media people, um, when I say film people they're both producers, directors, camera people. We have a, have a large practice of taxes for individuals and corporations. We do uh, a number of um, 501c three tax organizations that fund the arts. Uh, we're very familiar with the art community. Uh, we've been doing this for a number of years. Um, let me just give you briefly a, a conceptual idea of who we are, and uh, at least who I am in the firm and my partner will tell who he is in the firm. Um, it, you, are, you are choreographers and um, uh, stage director, so I'll give you a visual of a square, and, and the square has its center, and in terms of the political uh, line that I would take in that square is to put my client at the extreme edge of that square, and, and that client will feel comfortable in our office. And what I mean by the extreme edge is it, it is within the law, that extreme edge, that I keep the client, but I will push the envelope fully to the end of that square for the client. Um, so that's the kind of accounting that we... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you all agree. Uh, well, most of you, anyway. Um, we are very successful with artists who are starting and uh, starting up in their careers. Um, and what I mean by successful, there is a hobby loss rule that artists and filmmakers and directors and I'm sure uh, choreographers who are starting up face. And the hobby loss rule says that if you have two out of five years of losses, you are deemed to be a hobby. Uh, that's just a stipulation in the code. And if Tolstoy was alive, he would take 10 years to write War and Peace, and he'd be up the creek. 
So we have other ways of defending the artists who are challenged with the hobby laws, and I could say up to now we've been 100 percent successful in defending that in a meritorious way. Um, what artists and stage directors and choreographers need to do to defend that position and what you should all be looking to is to keep yourselves professional. And what I mean by professional is to organize your lives that you wake up in the morning and you are in your business when you get out of your shower. And uh, what I mean by that is you have a set of books and you keep bookkeeping records and you have a bank account that's separate and distinct from your checking account and you show that you are, in fact, trying to bring this business from ground level zero to a profitable footing. Um, there are a myriad of questions I'm sure you will have in terms of the tax law and hobby losses is just one of them and home office is another, et cetera, et cetera. We are equipped to answer all of your questions while we may not be able to answer them at this round table because we're not, you know, a... Uh, <coughs> right, we are not, not cle <laughs> clearly hooked into our computer. There are some, that we have cards, you can call us back, we have... Pens. We are we are publicists too. A publicist <laughs> also. This is our whole PR effort, this right? Is our, that's it. <laughs> and we're gonna. This is new. <laughs> this is old. Uh, so I'll take questions and, and see what I can do. Oh wait, let me let me introduce my partner Ross Wisdom first, and then we'll all take questions. I just want to just add a little bit, which is um, they're telling you to to make it as easy as possible for the media and the professionals. And, and when it, but when it comes to us, people like to make it as hard as possible. <laughs> they made money, they want to write it all off or whatever. And it's, you know, it's our job to do the best we can. So um, We're used to that. But we can advise you as to how to get a little better organized so at the end of the year it doesn't have to be so traumatic. And also, when you think of yourselves as a business, um, accounting firms like ours that tend to deal with small business and professionals and individuals um, are very used to acting like a management consultant or business advisor or controller or help helping you walk into the bank with a financial application, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So most of our clients don't have a controller. They don't have a, some of them don't even have a bookkeeper, et cetera. So we're quite used to filling that gap for our clients. And you should think of the accountant not as somebody to help you fill out a form at the end of the year, but somebody who can help you during the year that, with that relationship to really uh, run your business and, and uh, either run it more smoothly or, or answer a lot of questions. And, and things are really complex these days. And, uh, the only thing that's not complicated is you can ask me almost any question. I'll say, well, it depends. <laughs> so, um, but that, that is what we're here for, is, is to help translate that for you so you don't have to spend your time reading the internal revenue code. Um, and with that, I think we might as well just go into questions and answers because it would be impossible for us to do such a, uh, a nice encapsulated presentation like they did on the PR site. Well, first of all, I just wondered if you could just speak to whether uh, you think an individual artist should incorporate themselves as a, a corporation or uh, uh, how does that, what benefits there are to that? Well, that, that's definitely, that depends. it, it depends. Right? It's definitely depends. a depends answer. Yeah. <laughs> on what? Well, it depends on the level of income, uh, the uh, um, uh, liability that one might ex be exposed to, um, uh, the pension contribution that one wants to make, the uh, deduction for a large medical expense that one might have, uh, the various types of corporations that that would be addressed in, whether it's a C-type, an S-type, 
an LLC. I mean, it, there are many. You, I can't answer your question very specifically, and I'm not trying to hedge, but each issue has to be discussed before I can get the get the answer. And those are some of the aspects, some of the dynamics that fall in. As, as a rule of thumb, you would have people who are, let's say, below 100,000 gross revenue generally just being self-employed. Over 100,000, certainly considering other structures. Some advisors say, don't fool with the corporation until you're at 500,000. But we have a lot of people in the 100 to 200,000 range who need a corporation that works well for them. One more thing. When, when Ross says the 100,000, uh, it may be even significant for somebody to incorporate if they have a, a considerable medical expense. Because if you organize under the C corporation, I don't want to confuse everybody here with, you know, IRS talk and jargon. But if, if you incorporate under the C-type corporation, you could pay all your medical expenses that wouldn't be subject to limitations on the individual level through a C-corp. You could not do that through an S-corp. That's why I say each one of these issues have to be addressed. Um, but if there's considerable medical expense, if someone who's seriously ill or a senior or a therapist or a potential for it, I would certainly consider... <laughs> is this um, all freelance kind of income, or is some of it can be derived because they are on staff someplace? Once a combination staff. of staff yeah. and freelance. Once you're on, on staff, it's very difficult. However, I found uh, at, at times that when you are incorporated and you have a separate corporation name, separate um, federal ID number, they may afford you the opportunity to become self-employed. And what I mean by self-employed, pay, pay it to the corporation. Mm -hmm. In some instances, that is done. I've changed people around like that. Yeah. This, this like, kind of goes with her question, and I don't know if it affects anyone else, but it's um, a very vicious circle. Uh, as a director, one of the things that you uh, may choose to do is to teach. And, but of course, in order to continue directing, you don't, you don't teach full time. So there you are um, as an adjunct, and they don't pay you by fee. They, they yeah, you're a statutory employee. Exactly. So then on the taxes, um, your self-employment doesn't look the amount it is because you're not allowed to put in what you're paid by on full salary. In that situation, it would be most difficult, impossible to get off as, as a salaried employee for teaching. The employer will probably not consent to a corporation being the people, that, the person to receive the income. That's right, but then what happens is that the, the IRS. Yeah, I understand. Can do I know what thing. You know, it's your, your yeah, you, you, is not your income. Well, it is your income, and, 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 and the quote, freelance income, even though it's um, earned as a salary and taxes taken out, the other income may be smaller, and then you're going to have a problem with the hobby loss rule. Right. I understand that. And that's one of the issues we deal with all the time. Yeah, and, and we, we always deal with that issue by doing it anyway, taking the deductions anyway, saving you the taxes, and we've never lost them. Never. Over between us 50 years. So. As long as you have some, a little hat to hang on with the freelance income, something, at least 100 bucks, some freelance income, it opens up the arena of deductibility. Even though what you're from colleges that actually have the deductions, the Social Security, all that stuff? 
Well, I'm assuming you also have some freelance in addition sure. to that. Yes. You have both. Yes. Yeah. So we'll still take all the relations. Yeah. Um, <coughs> okay. uh, what's the current standing for freelance people such as us regarding uh, uh, use of home as office is our primary place of work is not our home? Okay. I, 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 okay. I'll answer your question. <laughs> um, uh, in, in 1999, it would be less of a problem uh, because they've changed the home changed office it. rule. In 1998, you still have the old rule where the focal point is. So, um, Briefly, what's the update? Uh, have we uh, stopped taking home office for writers, editors, uh, publicists, um, people who actually do the work at home? Uh, no, we have not. Let me elaborate on it just a little bit. Okay. The old rule, uh, uh, actually it was a court case, said that unless the work is done at home, you know, uh, then you can't do the home office anymore, the, the surgeon case, right? Now, uh, Congress uh, had to change the law, and Congress did change the law, but they changed it starting in 1999. They changed it about two years ago. And they said that as long as it's your primary business and you're paying bills at home, even if you're an anesthesiologist doing out of the home or... This applied to actors a lot. It applied to yeah. general contractors, anesthesiologists, and very likely directors. Um, now, um, for 1998, it doesn't mean you can't do it, but you would need to claim that you do work at home. Probably if you had some business meetings at home, if you were meeting people there, that would that could lock it in for you. And also, a, a, a director is, and a choreographer is, is a little bit broader. Uh, Umbrella there, so you could be certainly doing some writing at home, some designing, some planning. Well, you also do phone calls because What we try to do is tell our clients to keep a log of what they're doing at home, spend how much time they actually spend at the home with home use. Yeah, we we it's possible. It's possible. It is possible. If if, if your guys <laughs> if if you fall into certain guidelines and you'd have to meet those guidelines where you you took in people who are um, uh, need, you were giving education to these people who needed education and they weren't charging them you were teaching them the trade and it wasn't a, a fee that you were charging or you would or you were teaching and you would giving scholarships to some 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 of the students that you were teaching You'd have to have some purpose, you know, that is, a, that is either religious, charitable, or educational. What, was gonna, what, what would be the purpose of wanting to be a non-profit organization? What did you have in mind? There, there, as individual directors, we're not really that eligible for, say, like, if you're developing plays, because you're not a theater company per se. Mm -hmm. but an individual director can work with a playwright and be developing mm -hmm. uh, their play. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Quite often, they, the finding uh, is, do you have a facility, do you have a theater that you go out to? And that's what I'm talking about getting around. So there, there's a consultancy that I do that I don't receive a fee for, mm -hmm. but I sort of guide other people. And so that's what I'm kind of thinking about. Then as an individual, can I then incorporate myself in as a nonprofit? Are you, are you looking for grant funds or public support funds? That would be the purpose. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Well, if that's the purpose, then yeah. You, you, if you fit the, the grant guidelines, then automatically you would fit a definition of a Well, the grant guidelines is you have to be a non-profit. 
And, and also do plays. Right, right. right. Well, okay. he's talking about what kind of an umbrella you need. To, he's right. thinking of education and charity, but, but play artistic uh, endeavors, if they fit certain grant guidelines, would, would qualify. So, but it's, uh, it's usually about $1,500 to $2,000 to get the thing organized and a few months to get it approved, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But you could definitely do that. Now, in terms of the money running through the organization, if you're still looking to live off of that money, so let's say you get a grant for $10,000, and you need five thousand for expenses, and five thousand you need for your personal money. Well, that five thousand is still taxable to you. Okay. Just the, the fact that you're running it through a non-profit doesn't make it non-taxable. I got you. Okay. Okay. <coughs> yeah. Uh, I have a friend who did uh, sound designer and he writes off a lot of things. Thank you, but about twelve to fifteen years. My kind of client. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he writes off the store. You're a director making less than, making pittance per feet, and you have a temp job or something in that case. You say you make $20,000. That would put you into the hobby loss problem, right? You can write off the expense. I write off my bureaucracy. I write off fees that I buy for soundtracks and show. Yeah. How do I find, is there a simple way to find out how to do that? On your Schedule C. It's real simple. Schedule C. Yeah. Schedule, C. Schedule C. How do you document that? You have to document you have receipts. With all I receipts. assume you have receipts. How long do you have to your receipts? Three years from the filing date. Certain <laughs> records longer. But basically, the rule of thumb, three years from the filing date. <laughs> Just think, think in terms of... No, it's not seven. It's actually... He's, that's a technically correct answer. Three years. <laughs> think in terms of five... Think in terms of five years, because people want to know when do you start counting from and when does it exactly stop. Five years will put you. Well, if we're in 1999 now, so subtract five. In 1994, you can get rid of. Oh, I didn't know that. So technically, think, three years from the filing. It's three years from the filing date, <laughs> but they also want an adjacent year to look at. And, you know. If you never file, if you never file, you. There's nothing to say. <laughs> Save everything. I think there's an attorney in the room. If, if, there's, if there's fraud, you need the attorney. <laughs> and he's going to want all the records. <laughs> I think there's a couple more questions. Yeah, right, all the way in the back. Okay, I've handled a number of appeals on the hobby loss rule with the IRS. I have <coughs> lost zero. Uh, the, the, what you need is exactly how he started off this whole thing. You, you need to prove that you were conducting yourself as a business. So you need a, if you have Quicken or something, you have a set of books and you've got your receipts and, and, you, and, you, and you've got, here's where actually there's a, an overlap between publicity and accounting, if we've got something in the industry showing that you're respected by your peers in your industry, you're a member of, uh, of an association or a union, and, and uh, you've got write-ups, et cetera, then we can go to the IRS and say, what do you mean this is a hobby? Look at this, look at that, look at this. They are a business. Now, it's a presumption that this rule that you have to, uh, they cannot legislate profits, just like they can't legislate morality. If, 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 <laughs> if, 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 if they say that you, you must 
you can't have losses more than two years out of five, that's not actually a, a firm rule. What that means is it's a presumption. So if you don't have profitability more than three years out of five, in other words, you have losses more than two years out of five, then they can say, okay, now you have to prove to us your business. But if you're profitable three years out of five, they don't even raise the issue. So, But when they raise that issue, you have to be prepared to address it. And the way to address it is that you have some realistic expectation of making money in the future, supportable by facts and circumstances. You conduct yourself as a business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Most people will meet that definition. Where it really comes into play is somebody who tries something for a year and abandons it. They don't, they don't really establish themselves. Uh, somebody for whom it really is a hobby. So unless it really is a hobby for you, uh, I wouldn't uh, not do something uh, like what you're doing out of intimidation. Chances are 99%, I think, in most cases, it will hold up. So don't be intimidated by that rule. You need to be aware of it, and you should conduct yourselves professionally and, and be prepared for it. But I wouldn't uh, save, your, save your receipts and not take them to an end of that. In addition, when we say we've been meritous in our defense of it, we've been meritous in the situation where it's a husband and wife situation, where the husband will make hundreds of thousands of dollars and the wife will constantly, right off. Will, will constantly be a, quote, a tax shelter for the husband. And uh, we've been very, very successful in that. But I'm, I'm not clear that we understand what you have said. Did you say you were saving receipts for a number of different years and then trying to use them in a subsequent year? All right. You may have a problem using them in subsequent years, but you're saying you're going back and amending it? Okay, I would not recommend that procedure. That kind of a procedure would, you know, be risky in terms of audit frequency. People who get audited are generally the ones that amend. Okay, the higher incidence of audits. Take a swear to Royalties for trade or business are generally taxed the same way as earnings of the current year are taxed, which would be subject to both income tax and self-employment tax. Is that your question? Yeah. So you can either do as a W-2 or as a, as a Schedule C. Schedule C. Schedule C. Yeah, the other one. Yeah. <coughs> Well, mm, that's a depends question. No, it's very complicated. It's a complicated depends if, question. If you're getting royalties on something unrelated to your normal career, then that would not be subject to right. W-2 or self-employment tax. But for just about everybody here, I would imagine all the royalties would be subject to it. Right? It's for past services. Or if you ran through the corporation, you might be able to take advantage of other deductions. Right. Right. Yeah. Corporate structure could work there yeah. to help. Yeah. Can you discuss, um, a lot of us work out of town a lot, and we receive income from all the states. Mm -hmm. um, also, several of us, if I do have apartments in two different states at the same time, I'd like to try to write one off. How, how is that best? I know... The law is very specific. The law says if it's um, temporary living arrangements for a year or less, it's fully deductible. We take it off. 
has a deduction. If it's against Schedule C income, it goes on Schedule C. If it's self-employed income, if it's on a, um, if it's for wages that were earned in LA, let's say on a gig that you were at, it would go under itemized deductions, miscellaneous, subject to two percent. Do we take it? Yes. If you continually stay there, it's a question. Um, there's a, there's an unreimbursed business expenses, employee employee business expenses that are subject to two percent of your adjusted gross income. You don't get the whole deduction. You don't get it all. You subtract two percent of your gross if you income made, from the deduction. Right, if you made twenty thousand, the first four thousand would come off that deduction. Uh, first four hundred would come off that deduction. One more interesting What about moving for business purposes? Uh, moving for business purposes are fully deductible if it's for fifty miles or more, and it's for, and it's for employment. employment. But how does that work with freelance? Freelance? Oh, freelance is different. <laughs> freelance, freelance. the portion of the move is fully deductible. Right. If you move, you, you allocate the move between business move and personal move. And the yeah. business portion is 100%. 100% deductible. Right. Wait, when you say move, does that mean you have to move permanently or you're just going out of town to work? No. If you move within, an, in, in, the, in the city, let's say, and you're a... Um, Schedule C uh, filer, the portion of the move, the cost, that's applicable to the business items that are being moved are 100% deducted. Anyway, in fact, some of these issues, but I want to bring Lee into the discussion here uh, from the law firm of Dumbler and Giroux. Um, this is uh, Lee Giroux. Hi. Uh, <coughs> just give you a little background. Uh, firm Dumbler and Giroux has uh, been in existence for about 35 years. It started by Aegon Dumbler and my father. Uh, Aegon is counsel to SSDNC right now. Uh, we, uh, uh, right, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the firm represents a lot of uh, people in the entertainment field, uh, covers a wide, a wide variety. We work with uh, a lot of people in the theater industry. Um, for producers on, you know, directors, choreographers, uh, actors, designers. Uh, my practice tends to be more uh, with the talent side uh, and the creative side. I work with a lot of designers and, and, and uh, uh, performers uh, and some directors. Uh, and what, what our services uh, tend to be, there's a, a number of, of reasons that you might, you know, need a lawyer. Uh, most of you, you know, probably tend to think of the negative things. We tend to stay away from that. We really, we, we serve almost, uh, for the most part, uh, as a function, of correspondence with an agent. Uh, a lot of a lot of our clients, uh, especially the directors and choreographers, who use our services, either don't have an agent and just come to us because they need someone to negotiate their contract, or they have a question about a contract or an issue, or they didn't get paid, or you know, something something has come up. Uh, our primary function is in negotiating the contracts. Um, that seems to be the, the, the biggest part of our practice. Uh, so that we tend to supplement sometimes what the agents do. We actually represent a few uh, agencies and we'll work kind of behind the scenes. Uh, they'll have a contract. The agency will actually you know, provide contracts to us for our review. Uh, but as I said, with the individuals, uh, they're coming to us because Usually, usually it's in a situation where they don't have an agent and they want someone to, to uh, take care of their contract for them because as 
professionals and artists uh, most often we find they're not generally comfortable in negotiating their own contracts. Uh, it is, they just want to deal with the artistic side of, of the project and working with the producers always uh, sometimes it's a very good thing and sometimes it's you just want to make, keep that uh, relationship on a, on a purely artistic level. Uh, so that's that's basically what our function is. Uh, we do tend we do come in sometimes uh, at the end when there are problems. Uh, try to uh, you know, we call it dispute resolution where you know, there are issues we don't litigate. There are uh, you know certainly enough uh, other lawyers around that, that tend to specialize in that area. Uh, if, if we get situations like that, we tend to refer them out. But uh, usually we more often than not uh, we tend to resolve. And it's always about 90% of the time not payment of royalties or that last payment didn't get made or the check bounced or, you know, something like that. Uh, so that's the basic function of, of our services. Uh, if anyone has any questions about specifically? Do you charge hourly or uh, For the most part, when we're working with uh, clients and individuals uh, and we're negotiating straight from the beginning, we tend to work like the agents do, so we usually do work on a percentage. In that situation, it tends to work uh, best for the, for the clients. Yes, we do. Uh, I have my practice with, especially with the directors I work with. Uh, I work with a lot of people in the opera field, so they're, uh, they're, they're a lot of their work is uh, is, is foreign. Is it standard percentage? Uh, I what we do because it just the nature of the practice developed over time. My father started out and. He, Felt especially with the designers, and he felt that uh, serving the function in that sense, uh, kind of like an agent, but we don't get them jobs. We don't get our clients' jobs. It does happen from time to time because we do work with producers, uh, and we can recommend. You know, we know enough people in the industry, so we, we do charge a little bit less than an agent would, usually seven and a half percent. And it does vary when you're getting in, you know, crossing over into other areas like with TV and, and film. Uh, it tends to vary because you've got uh, other situations where someone's in a series and you know, the percentage situation doesn't work out as well. So we are somewhat flexible, but it's usually straight, uh, straight percentage with, uh, with directors and, and designers in that field. Yes. How does one copyright one's choreography? Well, you, uh, <laughs> it's not much different than copywriting uh, direction. Uh, you most likely uh, would have to file, I mean, you have to file an application. I mean, cop copyright, just two things, copyright, <coughs> you have a copyright once it's created. Uh, you don't actually have to file in order to obtain a copyright. That's just for protection purposes. You can register your copy a copyright with uh, down in Washington. And to do that, you would have to file an application. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the choreography, you'd have to have a tape of it. Okay, now with the actors' equity association, now. Doesn't mean you can't do it. <laughs> 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 yeah, yes, but if the producer will not allow it. Then, you, the then the only thing you can do is you can try to create, as you said, anything anything that, <clears throat> that is proof of what it is. I mean, the best yeah. the best is the visual, and right, there's no other way to do it. Yeah, like uh, Right, right. I mean, it's a, if you're filing it, you know, they don't want you to do it. But if if you if that's the only way to do it, sometimes you don't you don't really have a choice. And if, you know, if you have, it's assuming you have, you can get access to to the tape, which they probably they might you might find it very difficult. Uh, 
you could just write it down. No, they don't even let you uh, say for her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. But if you just wrote it, if I, just, I mean, I don't know any kind of notation, but if I just wrote it down, you know, you saw it, you say, you say, you say, and the score, it's, something that it, would be sufficient. Whatever you have. Okay. Uh, to prove, to show, demonstrate what you know is yeah. is, is there. It, it can be reproduced in some way, shape, or form. It's 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 a, it's a difficult concept. And yeah. it's, it's developing. You know, even right now with with the direct you know with direction, it's it's something that's uh, you know it's, it's an issue uh, with Joe Montello and uh, right. Love Fashion, and there's still right. you know, there's still issues. Uh, Where does the playwright right. Right, and well, it's it's more than that too. It's how to how to prove your direction. Right. It's kind of ephemeral. It's not something that's not like written words. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Are you saying that you need to submit the tape? I'm not saying you need to. No, I'm saying that would be the best. That would be the best. Uh, if it's an archival tape, and you simply get the number and refer to it. Uh, no, they actually have to have a physical copy. It, this again, this is just for registration purposes. This mm -hmm. is not for actual for, for obtaining copyright on, on original work. Your copyright is the date of creation. You have a copyright in that. This is just for registration, so, so for purposes of demonstrating that it, it's on record in Washington. It's just it's essentially right. better proof uh, mm -hmm. that you have the copyright. Have there been any issues uh, regarding? being deemed an independent contractor uh, and also belonging to a guild of unions, uh, uh, price-fixing antitrust. Uh, with the guild, it's not so much of an issue with the union, it's a big issue. It's a big issue with the designers. Right. Uh, it's, it's a huge issue with right. the designers. Right. Uh, there are many tax implications to it, um, uh, but the, the biggest part of the designers' issue is being able to be a member of the union, because in order to do that, you have to be an employee. And no theaters will pay them as employees right. because they don't want to. You know, they're all they're independent contractors. They're they're, they're working on their own. Right. They're not working out the theater on site. Well, they, they are. For is it a gray area? I mean, it's a gray area. Go either way in the courts in terms of uh, those people being deemed. It, it would most likely. Uh, it would most likely uh, not go in favor of the union, which is why they're not in a very strong position to fight. For the, uh, the, like they, they just uh, this past year signed a new contract, I believe, right. uh, and they were very close to striking. Uh, mm -hmm. The employees. The employee status. There, well, they, there was they had they hadn't had the contract expired a couple of years ago. Yes. Yeah. And there were a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of contention between the league and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and the USA. And the designers uh, were they actually voted on whether they were going to strike for the season. Mm -hmm. uh, if they had, if they had, and it became an issue and it never got to court, it's possible that you know the union would have been you know, decertified for, for the designers because they are technically mm -hmm. it's hard to define them specifically as, as, uh, as Al Although the reason that the Broadway contract went to the two was actually because of an IRS antitrust suit. Well, that, yeah, yes. So there's the president the What about for directors? Yeah, so what, what about for directors? Well, directors are, it's not a union issue. I mean, with the design is very specific. It's whether or not they're, they can be members of the union, right. ultimately. Uh, so I'm not sure what 
what the question what, what about about. Direct, can, are they independent contractors or employees? They're no different than, uh, they're, they're not, not different than designers for the most part, but again, it varies from situation to situation because you can be a resident director somewhere. Right. But for a uh, freelance director who has, the contract has a minimum in it, right? Uh, but you're de if you're deemed an independent, you're paid a fee as person W-2. Right. What is that in the view of, of the federal law? David, I can speak to that because I'm on the board of NCC. Right. And the union's only position in the state is that you are, you cannot be an independent contractor. You are an employee. Right. Because whether you're a member of a union, you have to work as an employee and not work as an independent contractor. Which means that all the fees that you work for are required to cover you whether they are whether you're being paid a fee or whether you're being paid a salary, which is still often your choice. You're they're still required to pay all the benefits or required to pay for unemployment. They're required to cover you on all those bases. Right. So you could apply for unemployment technically from any job you do, whether you got paid as a fee or not. That's, That's what the, the union has, has put you in that situation, and rightfully or incorrectly, uh, depending on how you want to look on it, uh, for the employer to conform and pay the employer's share of all of the benefits that are required under the negotiated contracts. Albeit, all, except, except the Right, except they, they have to pay FICA and Medicare, but not federal and state withholding. Because you're a statutory employee. It's deemed to be a statutory employee because you got a negotiated contract with the union. Right. It's not um, statutory. Uh, right, it's not statutory. Yeah. Right. You're an employee of that theater while you're working. So you're saying cumulatively each thing would add up to unemployment at the end of a certain period of time? Absolutely. Yeah. It's very common with actors in particular who are, you know, covered under union contracts and work in union films and, and union um, uh, gigs that they are W-2'd as opposed to 1099. So I might have an actor come into my office with about 25 different states and all on W-2, but it's primarily to cover uh, the requirements of the employer that were negotiated for the employee with unions. There's some directors that are here that are not yet members of the union, although, you know, hopefully... Well, that's your... Someday. That's your... Um, <laughs> well, uh, uh, for those directors who are working independently as freelancers and are not covered by a union contract, um, is there... Can they be deemed independent contractors? Well, I don't know what the union requirement is, but if you work in a union house, let's say, you may be required to get a W-2, and I don't know what the requirement is the union for them to pay on your behalf. people that are not working in union houses, they're not, you know, they might be working active. If they can get a 1099, they're freelance. Right, let, me, let me make another point. Not wishing to muddy the waters, but it's inevitable. Um, <clears throat> the IRS law is actually substance over form. So the form of payment, uh, i.e. getting a W-2 form, does not govern whether you're an employee or an independent contractor for tax purposes <coughs> on your own individual tax return. You could be con considered contractually an employee for union purposes, contractually paid as an employee by the producer, and still claim yourself an independent contractor on your own individual tax return, 
and that will be governed by facts and circumstances. So if you've got 52 different W-2s and you've done 52 different jobs, and the nature of the beast is that you really are freelance, and it's just because of the union you're, they're paying you this way, you can still be entitled to employee benefits, you can still be entitled to unemployment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you can still file on a Schedule C and take all the deductions. It's a tough argument. If you don't have any 1099s whatsoever for the year and all of it's W-2s, uh, it's going to look funny. But if you really are indeed uh, an independent contractor in terms of facts and circumstances, then you can still claim yourself. As, and I said this is going to muddy the water. But it is true, and I want it on, on appeal. And um, it, in each case can be different. That's why he was referring to are you in residence or not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it really goes to the nature of your relationship as to whether you're freelance or not, no matter how you get paid. Also, on an, on, to add to that, an, an employee or a, one who considers himself to be self-employed by the mere fact of receiving, let's say, 20 W-2s, if they're a performing artist, would not be subject to that 2% floor that I mentioned a moment ago and can take those expenses off directly. But, but that's only if they make less than 16000 Under 16000 yeah, so that's just, for, just forget about it. Well, you don't know. He's, he's well, the, such a small one. On, on the unemployment thing, um, <clears throat> what if it's a situation, you do a, an audition call in January. Your actual rehearsals don't begin until March. Are you then considered an employee all through that January and February period? Are you getting paid? Yeah. If you have a contract, you get paid. I mean, that's what's going well, they spread out the payments over that whole time. Yeah, you start the employment. I don't know. I need to read it, but I got paid in January. That's the beginning thing. That's not the actual start of work. Well, no, I because I had an audition call in the middle of January, so I went out there and I held the auditions, and I was the payments have been structured oh, over the any, entire period. You've done period. any work, and you have gotten paid. You have you have a contract on. Yeah. Well, I have to go look up the start date. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, I just want to know then that, like, I'm a four-month employee because they're taking out uh, deductions and everything. They put me on payroll. There's probably a pay period attached to that. You may have been paid for one week or something, and then you don't get paid. Any. So well, the payments are broken up over uh, three equal parts. Three, three payments. Yeah, well, three equal parts. Right. Well, if there was there was withholding from based on the total contract over that three months, when when's the when is the last payment? The final payment is in April. So the, I would assume they're basing it over that four month withholding. Based on that, prorated over the. If it's considered a four month pay period, then yeah, she would qualify as a four month of four months of earnings for unemployment purposes. If that's the question. Yes, that that's, that is the question. The question is, how are they considering it as a pay period? Are they considering it as, as a short pay period, or are they considering the whole thing as their pay period? Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out, do I have four, four, four months worth of weeks, work weeks, or do I have just the actual one week here in January and then X number of weeks in March when the rehearsal actually begins? Yeah. Well, if what he said is true, which is they're basing it on a four-month pay period mm -hmm. for, for withholding tax purposes, mm -hmm. and it'll probably say that on the stuff, what mm -hmm. the pay period is, then, then it would be reported that way to unemployment as a four-month four pay period, in which case you would be, yes.
Is it first for me that you would get royalties paid to you on a W-2? I've never seen it. No. Well, it, the original ones. Do they show withholding the payments? It's whatever yeah. it's supposed to come on. It's then there shouldn't be. There, there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be no withholding unless you haven't given them your social security number. Have you ever seen it? I've never seen it. Well, if the, if, the, if the royalties is based on something that was originally on a W-2, then the royalties would also be on a W-2. Well, like a residual, kind of. It's residual, is it, really? Is it residuals? The residuals. Oh, residuals is not a royalty. Yeah, yeah it's different. Residuals. Residuals. Uh, I'd have to look at it. I mean... The, 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 <laughs> well, if it's, an, if, it's an annual, if it's an annual payment, are they withholding like 20% federal tax or something? 18. Then maybe they're doing the lump sum payment. Yeah, lump sum payment, 18%. Yeah. Plus Social Security, they're probably withholding 35% if they're doing a lump sum. They could. It's a specified percentage for a lump sum. Yeah. I'd have to see it. Freelancer, and you actually are an employee working, let's say, two or three times a week for a whole year teaching, and they insist on paying you as you're coming in contact with them, coming in the United States. That's legal. Let's say you actually are an employee working two or three times right. a week for over a period of a year. Most co most companies, well, I don't know too many that will pay as an independent contract because it puts them at risk. I oh, so it is legal? But it depends on the circumstance. I mean, if they're technically, uh, if you're employed there, over, you know, yeah. I mean, you look at the independent contractor rules, but if you're working there yeah. steadily that would be as an employee, right. then legally they're required to. Yeah. Yeah. Universities do that a lot with that. So yeah. you could say, look, you know, what you're doing against the law, you have to pay me. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> it's not against the law like they violated the law. Yeah. It's it's a it's an interpretation of the law, and they could be, like you said, at risk. Yeah. If they get audited by IRS and the IRS deems you to be an employee, and they sometime in the future they could they would have to cough up all those payroll taxes for you in their audit. So yeah. so it's putting themselves at risk. And most uh, most companies uh, are, are trying to address that issue by erring on the side and consistent with IRS, yeah. so, so they're trying to make people employees, unless you're your own corporation. So this gets back to that structural issue. If you were a C corporation or an S corporation, then that issue goes away for them. So they would be happy to pay you as a corporation and not have to put you on the books as an employee. So this is a really complicated area. And it can go either way in, in a lot of cases. The, the other alternatives, you know, if it's really more of a freelance situation where you're working over a couple of weeks here and then maybe a couple of weeks yeah, later on, like then you know, you'll see a provision in there that you know, you're an independent contractor, you're responsible for all of your taxes, and they try to deem you as an independent contractor. 
contractually. Um, but again, you know, it's it's an interpretation, and even when it, whatever it says in the contract, the IRS will look at the circumstances if they get it audited. You know, if you go try to file unemployment, there's nothing there because they didn't treat you as an employee. That's what it, that's what it comes up. Actually. Right. Well, what I'm asking is, if you work full time for a year, are you technically by unemployment in the law's standards? Are you that's considered one, an employer? That's one of the employee? twenty test rule that they will utilize to see if you are in fact an employee when they get audited. There is no definitive test, and, and, and people would love to have this test, but it does not exist. There, there is no clear-cut black and white answer, are you an employee or are you an independent contractor? There are 20 different factors that they factors. use, uh, and then it's a judgment call, uh, often by a judge. With no benefits. Exactly. I understand the problem. So, you, what would happen? Could you go and file and see what happens? Mm. Well, you you'd probably have a big <laughs> problem. <laughs> a bigger problem. I have a question. I was looking for an article, and they just were audited, and this very thing happened to them. Uh -huh. And the, what the Fed determined was that they could be considered That's a broader definition, right? I think honestly, it's more of a, of a question for the PR people, because uh, <laughs> 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 uh, it's, it's hard. It's very hard to get uh, good copies of your work. That uh, you're, you're very, it's very restricted in what you can take and how you can, what you, what you can do with it. Can um, get be real, be real footage. I guess it's just like a, a very short right, period of bits, bits and pieces right. of. Something that you can put on a reel. I don't know how much it shows if you're directing, but it's something. And after uh, after somebody wants you to do it? Yeah. It's meant for publicity purposes. Right. And it's meant for those clips that you see, like right. on, on TV for, shows for ads and, 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 and promotion publicity. You can tape for 20 and you can use 15. 15 and you can use two or three. Oh. Is there any movement towards getting? Actors work videotaped in an archival kind of way for the purpose of recording a copyright. Right. 
for the, the Lincoln Center archival thing, but, of but that's, that's not, not the, sent out right. to the But that's not a copyright. That's right. Maybe David has an insight. Briefly, that, I mean, this is a contentious issue between FSC and Access Equity, and we're trying to get a, to the committees to work together on this, but Access Equity is very unbending about it. They just have taken a very, very hard line saying absolutely no taping anytime, anywhere, right. never. Because one and tape will get out, right? No matter what arguments we bring to them, they don't hear it. They don't want it. And that they believe that there are too many issues that will negatively impact actors. And, you know, beyond the actors, then you get musicians, you get set designers, you get, you get everybody who's involved on a videotape is potentially um, an obstruction to having this happen. A litigant. So it's a very good thing. <laughs> many permissions. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've never heard of anybody being about that people do it all the time. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very, very often. I did not hear that. <laughs> the Actors Union, just to be said before, which is actually not true, the Actors Union will never let the actors do it, even if they all agree to do it. The actors agree to do it, and it happens all the time. So I mean, those are two different things. But the, officially, Actors Equity will not allow it to happen. That's a couple more, yeah. Yes, just ask Leon, as I, just because everyone sues now in 1990, when I go into a rehearsal as a choreographer, I always ask people if they have any injuries. They don't have to tell me in front of people, but just to know. And then when I do like uh, hinges or knee slides or something, you know, if you want to go, you ask them about it. Can they, but this is just word of mouth, can they six months later sue me or the, or the theater well, company? Well, let's put it this way. Let me say, anybody can sue you. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't matter, you know, and, and what, what we uh, have developed now, what's, what's incorporated into, for instance, the designer's uh, uh, first-class contract uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with the league is, is an indemnification provision, and they're actually required to be named as, as a, a named uh, insured party under the producer's uh, insurance policy, but just for that purpose. Uh, and once you get out of the first class, it's more piecemeal, but we insist on having it in every contract uh, because just for that reason, you know, it's, and it's no different than, you know, the set designers up there and, you know, he's got some, and uh, the scaffolding falls down and, and this has happened. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, it's a good question and we've had, uh, we've had clients, you know, in that situation and if someone gets hurt, they're going to sue everybody because then that way they find out who's got the money to pay them and they'll sue the producers uh they might even sue you know the the the, the set designer because you know hurt themselves on this on the scenery or something even though it was part of the choreography they might sue you they might sue you know, everybody but that's that's the way you, you best thing you do is to protect it contractually directly with the producers and have them uh be responsible well, I was working with off off Broadway, and I mentioned this to the director, and he kind of concluded yeah. like it was no big thing. Well, it's not. If someone did fall, and I, I made sure I. I it's not. Right it's not an issue between you as choreographer and the director. It's an issue between you and the producer. Because the producer's hiring you. The producer's hiring you, and you're. Maybe you're an employee, maybe you're not an independent contractor, whatever you are. <laughs> they're they're the ones that are uh, ultimately and and. You know, um, off, you know, it depends on how off Broadway you are, but that level, the producers, the ones that can afford to protect you 
and uh, generally, you know, they should if they don't. They should have some you know, liability, general liability policy every time they do a show, and that's where your protection is going to come in. No, no. So you can't be sued because they're not hired. Oh, you can be sued. <laughs> <laughs> you can be sued. Yeah, anyway, you can be sued. But you're not. And, and, and you're dealing with showcase. The theater is more likely responsible to have it in their state. You well, the theater, it, but, you know, it's not a matter of responsibility. It's a matter of being sued. Because <laughs> you get sued, what do you do? You don't say, oh, well, it's that. You know, it's the yeah, producer. Course, you know, it's the theater. You have to defend them. And you have to hire, theoretically, a lawyer. And, uh, and, and that's going to cost money. And that's where the indemnification comes into play. Now, you're going to work with an off-off-roadway theater, they don't have any money either. So your indemnification is only good if they have insurance. And if they don't have insurance, then, then it doesn't matter. matter. Then, yeah, it doesn't matter. Then they can still be, can still be sued in right. court. Right. You might win. You'll probably win. But it's going to cost you, you know, to defend them. Well, I think what we gathered from all of this, I've been established yourself as a business and you've paid your publicist and your personal manager. <laughs> 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 if you have any money left, you're a genius. <laughs> I wanted to uh, have you join me in thanking our panel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SDCF, Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.